Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This series is brought to you by Super Guardian, a specialist self-managed super fund administrator known for their client-centric approach to their full service solution. If you need SMSF support or CPD, check out the Knowledge Center or sign up for Super Guardian updates at superguardian.com.au. Welcome back to the XY Advisor podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and today we're talking all things in and around self-managed super funds. And specifically today, we're we're deep diving into the concept of what happens during an audit. Uh, what are all of the the, the the bits and pieces around auditing, the pain points, and the things that go right, and the things that go wrong. And so, I'm joined today uh, by an amazing auditor, Shelley Banton. Welcome. Thank you, Fraser. Good morning or good afternoon, everybody. Yeah, fantastic to have you along. Uh, now, do you want to give the listeners a quick overview of you and and uh, and the business that you're working with at the moment? Yes, I'm uh, I'm head of education at ASF Audits. Um, we're actually one of the largest auditors, SMSF auditors, in Australia, who's totally independent. So we just work with SMSF Audits. We don't do any other types of audit or perform any other sort of uh, work for any other clients. So we're able to, you know, put our hands on our heart and say that, yes, we're actually providing that independent solution, which is really important at the moment, especially for accountants, where there's been a lot of um, discussion around the revised APES 110 standard, which has then, you know, uh, provided a lot of, uh, I guess, discussion and and really an, an up. up changes to our SMSF industry and as of the 1st of July this year in terms of how um, accountants are working with their clients um, and financial planners too for that matter. So yes, an interesting time in our in our industry. Fantastic. And you mentioned the change word. There's plenty of that going on in all the different parts of in and around. So you're head of education. Does that mean you're educating the auditors that work with you or, or the accountants or advisors? How does that work? Um, pretty much putting out uh, education pieces to the industry, um, obviously internally and also to our clients as well. But the more that we can get out information about um, making sure you know compliance in SMSF audit in SMSFs are there from day one, it will make our job easier at the end of the day, and it also makes our accounting and financial planning clients' lives easier as well. So it's all about making sure that that audit process goes smoothly and as easily as possible without too many queries. And if we can, you know, get that message out, that's going to make everybody's lives easier and also be able to make sure that um, when all that work comes in at the end of the year, that we all meet our, our lodgement deadlines. Yeah, fantastic. And I like the way you said making lives easier. That's certainly uh, something that we all need. We all need. And tell us about your background. Uh, how did you get into this uh, into this role? Oh, okay. Um, from a very sort of a different place, I guess I've had a bit of a varied background. I've worked um, for corporates, I worked for Citibank, Combank, Perpetual Funds Management. So I've sort of um, come from that era and um, and then sort of moved into audit through doing work, managing a workers' compensation wage audit business um, in Newcastle, actually, where I currently live. 
And then we were looking at how that was, how that industry was moving um, and saw other opportunities in SMSF audit and then decided to um, look into that. And about 2006, I, I opened a business, Super Auditors, um, that focused on SMSF audit. We were the first um, audit firm in Australia to provide like a client portal for our clients and we had our um, streamlined online um, portal that was secure that enabled clients to just get in and upload documents easily and quickly which was one of the which doesn't sound like it's so amazing now but back then it was you know first in the industry which was really exciting and then in 2017 uh, we merged with ASF audits and I've been with their team ever since and I'm now head of education as I said in terms of um, trying to get the message out there and getting funds compliant so it makes um, everybody's lives easier at audit. Oh, fantastic. I love a good uh, early adoption to technology story. I, I think it's uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's right up uh, right up there with one of the things that I, I enjoy, you know, like seeing companies, uh, you know, push themselves and go outside the box and really just think about their clients from that point of view and go, well, what's the best thing and easiest way of my client to get this information back, which is kind of still a problem that exists today uh, in many audits, I guess, clients getting information back. Yeah, and look, you, you're absolutely right there. And what we've done at ASF Audits is we've actually developed a system whereby it's a, a one-click audit system. So if you're using the administration software, uh, one of the three big ones, BGL, uh, Class and, uh, and Super, Super Central, you're able then to um, go into that software basically click a button because we've already set up the APIs between us, our, our system and, um, and that software, and basically just upload that audit straight to us. So it makes it really easier. And we're trying to get to that concept of one click and understanding how the data feeds work in those particular platforms and also then using that data feed as a source of truth. So the amount of information that we're then asking our clients for at audit becomes significantly less as well. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. One-click audit process. Uh, sounds like a dream, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, dreams come true and we continue to refine it, so it's very exciting. Fantastic. And uh, you mentioned you mentioned the word uh, your clients, but also earlier on you sort of mentioned uh, the advisors and the planners um, and the accountants being your clients. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, your client is the trustee. Uh, which is often the client, plus also the you know the advisor and the planner and the the accountant. They're all sort of that realm of clients. Do you want to let us know how that works? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, the trustee, as trustee of their super fund, has the um, you know choice in who they have their funds audited by. But in most cases, they've got a relationship with their accountant or financial planner, and it's much easier for them to obviously have the accountant coordinate the audit of their fund. And I guess that's where that relationship comes in, um, you know, through to SMSF audit firms like ourselves, because we're able to talk to the accountants in our in our own language, which makes it easier because we get the responses quite easily without having to talk to the to the trustees. Um, and there are very, there, there's a lot of switched on trustees out there, but the majority of trustees wouldn't understand the types of questions we would be asking at audit and also understand the type of information we would be requiring to make sure that we could tick off that particular aspect. Yes, very um, much. It, it's very much a three-way marketplace, I guess, isn't it, mm -hmm. from your point of view? And you really have to, I guess communication becomes the, the you know, the vital key for that. 
Well, that's true. And we constant we have a client manager who's appointed to each and every um, accountant or financial planner, and that becomes their point of contact. I'm also another point of contact to answer any of the curly questions that you have during the course of the year, and that's just part of our service anyway. Um, so if you ring up and you have a, an issue with a fund, you know, we don't necessarily need to know all of the details about the fund. We can just have a general conversation about an issue that might be happening so that we're able then to provide that assistance uh, during the year so that when it gets to audit, it isn't the horse has already bolted, it isn't an issue, and it doesn't become a compliance problem at the end of the day. So I guess there are always going to be those cases where, you know, we can't do anything because that has happened, but what we can then do is work with the client to make sure that there's a rectification process put in place um, so that the ATO understands and, and can see that the trustee is trying to make amends and making sure that their fund returns to the path of compliance. Yeah, this is really interesting, isn't it? And I think uh, there's probably um, been a common problem over many years with regards to um, a delay in getting forms back and, and getting information back and then causing, you know, going over a deadline. And I think, when, you know, the deadlines, uh, you're constantly keeping an eye on the deadlines. But um, is that sort of something that you've seen an improvement on with, with the end client or the trustee and improving on those delays? Or is that, um, is that something that's still a problem? Look, I think um, with the way that we work with our clients in particular, we're and, and we've just discussed previously that one-click audit function, that allows us to obviously ask for less documentation at audit. Now, there's always going to be information that we do require, such as the statutory files. We need, um, you know, specific information about related party transactions, for example, or unlisted um, entities, which is always difficult to provide that information, especially if the accountant who we're dealing with hasn't actually undertaken the uh, preparation of the financial statements for that particular unlisted entity. So when you're talking about us dealing with the accountants and then the accountants having to deal with third parties to try and get that documentation through to us, it does become a little bit more difficult and the time does get um, you know, stretched out a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, we can only work in the, the framework that we have. Um, and there are parameters from uh, a compliance perspective, which provides the onus on the trustees to provide us with information within 14 days. So there's section 35C2 of SIS, which says, yep, if the trustee is requested documentation by the auditor, they have to provide that within that 14-day time frame. If they don't, well, then it's an ACR. But the question is then, Fraser, who is that point of contact? If we're providing that information to the accountants or the financial planners, how then do we know at what point they're then passing that information on to the trustees? So we do have to you know, work together and have a great relationship and make sure that that continues so that we can keep that ball rolling and make sure that we also meet our professional obligations at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and your professional obligations are such where, you know, um, auditors are starting to getting dragged into determinations and uh, and cases, aren't they? I sort of, um, there's been a couple of cases where, um, or legislations where auditors are now being liable. Uh, there were two cases in particular uh, back in 2018 when there were two auditor litigation cases where between the two of those cases they were awarded, uh, I think it was in excess of $2 million because the auditors were held liable for the losses in those funds. And the reason for that is that they didn't do their job properly. So they had a lack of audit evidence on file which didn't confirm or verify the ownership 
of fairly high risky assets within those, both of those funds. There were unlisted entities, there were loans to uh, companies um, and so on. So it was a case of the auditor really um, dropping the ball in a lot of cases. And I guess this also goes to the point of some of those auditors who are out there who are currently doing complicated audits for a level, very low cost. How do you actually undertake the requirements of your professional obligations and do that for $200 or less? You, you, the, the answer is you simply can't. And you're going to cut corners and potentially you're going to end up uh, a litigation case um, and you're going to appear on the front pages of, of um, you know, SMS of advisor and whatnot in terms of being, um, you know, hauled across uh, the industry as an example. So, and and I don't think it's the last two cases that we've seen. These things just take a lot of time to, to gel. And interestingly enough, it's not only going to be from the trustees that we're seeing this litigation happen, it's also going to be from the beneficiaries because if the beneficiaries then inherit what they consider, you know, kids inherit what they consider to be, you know, a dud fund, they're then going to be looking for ways in which to work out, hey, how did this happen? Did everything go according to how it was supposed to? They're going to, you know, go and look and uh, engage a high-profile um, SMSF lawyer who's then going to start right from the very first trust deed to make sure that everything in that fund from day one um, had been, uh, you know, had been audited correctly and that all of those professionals involved with the administration and the operation of that fund, um, including, you know, notwithstanding the trustees' involvement, um, have done their jobs wrong, right. And when they haven't, obviously that's when um, we're going to have litigation cases. Yeah, this is the concept I call the compounding liability conversation mm-hmm. around the, the, the concept that you get paid for to do an audit this year um, and, you know, advisors get paid for the advice and accountants charge fees during this year. But the, the liability continued on year after year. Uh, and so if you've got, you know, if, you, if you're auditing 100 cases a year, then all of a sudden that, uh, that compounds over time. Oh, look, it certainly does. And while these cases were, um, you know, found in 2018 and they they were actually audits that related back to uh, 2004 to 2007, 2008 audits. So we can see that there's certainly a time lag and it just proves exactly what you said, that that compounding effect of litigation um, just will continue. And and as we're moving into a more litigious, you know, area, I think just uh, taking on board more of that from overseas, especially the examples we see from the US, Australia is going to go down that path and we're going to see that with SMSF professionals as well. And the reason why the auditors were certainly highlighted in these two cases is that all of the professionals that were along the way had either left the industry, were you know declared bankrupt or were disqualified or didn't no longer had um, uh, their businesses you know uh, continuing. So it was the auditor who was left standing holding the bag. Yeah, that's really interesting with the amount of advisors too planning on leaving the the profession over the next sort of few years as this you know um, reports on up to fifty percent of the the workforce or the advisor forces is looking to leave. So that's going to be really interesting if those businesses are sold on to, you know, their liability continues, if those businesses are, you know, shut down, it, it, it could uh, it could certainly put stress on the system. Yeah, and, and certainly too, if you're the, you know, the advisor in charge, obviously, of your clients and you're the one forging that relationship with the auditor, if you're recommended that your clients use an auditor who is cutting corners, who is just rubber stamping, that obviously becomes a liability for you as well. Because, you know, 
like it's it, the old saying is you always get what you pay for. So yeah, yes, and I, I imagine it in uh, in a business where that's happening. Um, it's not just happening to one client; it's happening to a lot of them. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> now you mentioned uh, related parties a couple of times, and and also uh, unlisted entities. And uh, you know, when we talk about some of the things that can really go wrong inside some of the audits that you see, um, are they sort of the the top the top couple of things apart, apart from you know um, dates missing dates? So that are they the things that you see the most and that you come up with problems with? Yeah, in terms of those sort of more complicated assets, for sure. I mean, the types of um, uh, contraventions that are most regularly reported to the ATO are those of in-house assets and loan to members. So when we're looking at loans to members, I mean, that's just basically a situation where um, you know, the trustees looking at a cash cow, which is the SMSF, and they've got issues outside with businesses outside that may be having, you know, cash issues or what have you, and there's this SMSF cash cow sitting there. So it's very easy just to dip in and take what you need to prop up that business with the idea that I'll pay it back real quick and, you know, it might be a blip, but it won't be a huge issue. But obviously, sometimes, as we know, these things don't get rectified and that uh, cash just keeps dwindling down and it does become an issue. So it does account for about 20% of all contraventions that are reported to the ATO. Um, And with in-house assets, obviously, there's issues where trustees are either leasing or investing in or loaning money uh, with those related parties, which makes those assets, then in-house assets of an SMSF. Um, And while you can have up to 5% of in-house assets, um, of total SMSF assets as your in-house assets in a, a year, once that exceeds that, the trustees are then required to prepare a plan to put in place to reduce that in-house asset limit to below 5% by the following year. Um, and where you've got issues with related unit trusts, for example, where those um, where, where those entities and, and those investments are typically very material assets within the fund, it's very difficult for them to, you know, obviously um, sell units in that related unit trust to a, an unrelated party or certainly if there's a property in that related unit trust. Um, it's it's difficult to just move that. So it becomes, at the end of the day, a fire sale to be able to make sure that that fund remains complying because at the end of the day, you're going to lose your tax concessions and you're going to be taxed at the highest marginal uh, tax rate. So, and that's regardless of whether you're in pension mode or not. So, you know, you are it is incumbent on the trustees to make sure that that they are aware of their duties and obligations and responsibilities of being a trustee at all time, regardless of what professionals they use. So, you know, it's best that trustees do take an interest um, in their self-managed super fund and make sure that while they may not understand all the intricacies of of how things are supposed to operate to at least be on top of it and at least have a general understanding so that they can actually direct traffic with their, in line with the relationship they have with their professional at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah I was just about, about to ask you that exact thing. You mentioned the plan to rectify, but uh, the proactive approach for planners and the tips that they can actually implement before any of this happens or, or on a regular basis when they're doing their reviews, um, really that's just around looking at those assets and, and having a plan in place and a checklist. 
Well, it is. And it's also about having a good relationship with your auditor who you can actually talk to on a regular basis if these sorts of issues come up so that you're actually being proactive, as you said, and not reactive. Um, and, of course, you know, at the end, sometimes trustees will just go out and do something without asking for your, for your help or your advice. You can't do too much about that. But then it's a case of what can we do to make sure that uh, we get the fund back on, on track. And sometimes with these particular issues, they can be so difficult that the best solution for them, in fact, is to go down the path of um, putting in a voluntary disclosure to the ATO, which sounds a little bit, um, you know, contradictory in terms of why should a trustee fall on their sword, but at the end of the day, you are going to get a better outcome for your client as the advisor if you do go down that path and undertake that voluntary disclosure with the ATO rather than letting the auditor um, submit an ACR on, uh, for your client at the end of the day. So um, we will obviously get that information from the ATO or from yourself in terms of the outcome of that voluntary disclosure service, but we will implement that into our ACR and we will still be required to lodge, but at least the ATO will know that there's been an outcome and certainly there's been going to be probably a better outcome if you go down and talk to the ATO and, you know, get get that sorted as quick as you can rather than letting the um, auditor have to lodge that AT- ACR for you. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, obviously, the, the, you know, that's the, that's the purpose of having an audit so that uh, it can be lodged mm-hmm. with, the, with the ATO. Um, now, just while we were quickly uh, going back to the unlisted, um, unlisted uh, entities, well, unlisted assets, essentially, um, there is a lot going on in this space. And you did mention that, yes, sometimes trustees make decisions on, at the spare of the moment and they don't consult their with their professionals and then all of a sudden it's, it's about, uh, you know, creating that scenario where we actually have to go back and, and change something. Uh, cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is surely something that you would have seen creeping into uh, into portfolios from time to time and then, um, you know, that maybe maybe they're not, generally they're not recommended by the, the advisor but they, they're creeping in anyway. How, how is this working with the, uh, the investment strategy? Well, cryptocurrency is a new asset class that we're seeing coming through. Um, it basically is enabling, you know, decentralised applications to work on the internet. So um, it, it's got the blockchain behind it. It's very uh, sophisticated technology that, that lives behind uh, uh, these cryptocurrency assets. But at the end of the day, the reports that we're getting at audit are very unsophisticated. So there's a little bit of a disconnect between what is happening behind the scenes and what we're finding, the documentation we're getting, which makes it difficult for us to be able to rely on that as sufficient appropriate audit evidence at audit time. And there's a lot of ways, I guess, in which um, trustees need to be aware of that they're they're not going to fall foul of the compliance um, uh, legislation in terms of making sure that they meet the um, rules and regulations at all times. So the types of things they can't undertake is, you know, related party transactions with cryptocurrency. So they can't lend crypto to um, a related party or to a member, um, which is a breach. Uh, They can't accept crypto into the uh, fund through an in-specie contribution. That's a breach. They can't lend crypto to, as we said, to provide financial assistance to a member. That's going to be a breach. The fund can't borrow money to buy crypto. That's a breach. Um, You can't 
give a charge over the assets of the fund. So all of these sort of sophisticated um, financial products that we've seen, which are unregulated, which have been developed through crypto, can't be undertaken by within a, within a super, self-managed super fund because the majority of them will require a charge to be given over the assets of the fund. So we're seeing a lot of movement within this area. We're seeing clients take up crypto. Obviously, we're seeing Bitcoin at record levels at the moment, and we're seeing other cryptocurrencies which are also peaking given, uh, you know, certain tweets by celebrities and whatnot. So there's there's not not, not a real lot of meat in the sandwich behind the asset backing of these particular cryptocurrencies. Having said that, they are seemingly becoming more mainstream. You are seeing Microsoft starting to accept crypto as payment. Uh, we're seeing PayPal. We're seeing um, banks in in uh, in America taking crypto. Um, we saw Elon take Bitcoin. He's now not taking Bitcoin. So all of these sorts of things are, are playing into the price. And also, I guess, the fear of missing out from trustees in terms of investing into this asset class when we've just got such low interest rate environment that we're going to have for quite some time within Australia. Yes, I, I think that's definitely one of the reasons why it's become popular. Obviously, uh, obviously, it's um, popularity goes up and down depending on tweets and, and information and news reports uh, and uh, and trading on what uh, people say, which is very interesting, um, which is how we end up in these problems in the first place. But uh, look, uh, you know, I think uh, some of these big companies actually tend to see, you know, cash as a bit of a liability if it's actually going backwards. So it's it's, it's interesting where this is going to go. But I'm take, I take it that, uh, you know, the one-click audit process, um, it's very difficult to get crypto into that one-click audit process at the moment. Well, at the, at, it's real, that's really not up to us at the end of the day. That will be up to those, uh, I guess, those administrators or those platforms that are that are trading or those exchanges that are trading uh, crypto for, for their particular clients and then providing some sort of data feed or some sort of reporting mechanism into those administration platforms that we then have APIs with. Um, which already had feeds coming in from data, from banks, financial institutions, RAP accounts, um, managed funds, brokers, so on and so forth. It's just another data feed that will come into that administration um, platform, which we will then access. And I guess then what our job will be at the end of the day is to look at those particular uh, data feeds that are coming in from wherever, whichever crypto source it is, and making sure that we can verify them and use them as a source of truth. Because if we can't do that, well, then we're back to square one in terms of asking for the reports. So we already do that with a lot of um, banks and financial institutions who are feeding um, uh, information for their clients into those administration platforms. And we've undertaken a process over a series of years, actually, for some of these, where we've been able to verify uh, several hundred of these feeds that are coming in. So this is where we get to this one-click um, environment because we're asking for less reports at the end of the day because we can rely on those data feeds as a source of truth. Now, whether we get to a point where cryptocurrency is coming into those platforms and we can do the same for those, uh, no predictions there, Fraser. <laughs> and whether that will ever happen, I don't know, because all of these um, exchanges and other platforms that are dealing in crypto, they're all unaudited. So from an audit perspective, we can't rely on those reports. We have to go in and do our homework uh, online through, a, 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 you know, like everybody else. 
Which is an incredibly difficult job. And I think with, as you mentioned, so many different trading platforms around, it's going to be very difficult for those uh, aggregators to try and get the correct data in. And then, as you said, verify the source of truth to be able to pass it on to you. So interesting. Watch this space. I'm I'm not sure it's going to be solved anytime soon, but hopefully uh, we can get somewhere with it. Um, Now, obviously we, uh, we're we're talking about sort of an alternative asset in the, in the investment strategy. Um, How is, how, how, how do you see with people, um, basically buying crypto and then trying to add it to their investment strategy? Oh, look, that that happens all the time uh, with a lot of assets. In fact, we see, um, w- traditionally, we have seen very poor quality investment strategies, which were just basically a regurgitation of the legislation, uh, which were just cookie cutter template approach. But the ATO actually wrote to trustees uh, two years ago now, um, and mentioned that, you know, if you're, and they targeted specifically um, trustees who had LRBAs with 90% of their assets in the, in property that was funded by an LRBA, and they basically said, have you considered diversification um, aspect of investing in this one asset class within your investment strategy? Um, I, I think there was a lot of uh, discussion about that in the industry, and and I and even though there was some negative feedback on it, I think the outcome of it was probably inadvertently one of the best um, campaigns the ATO ever run because we're still talking about investment strategies today and what is right and what is not right because. Previously, it was just a set it and forget document, which really only then got looked at at audit time. And it was only the auditor who basically said, well, if you've got asset allocations in your investment strategy, they're outside the ranges of what is actually in your fund. When is that going to come back into line? Now, there's no requirement under the legislation to have asset allocations within your investment strategy. You can actually have that in your statement advice. You can just list the assets that you're going to have in your investment strategy. But what you do need to do is to make sure that all of the assets that you've got within your fund is there for maximising the retired benefits of the members and being able to articulate how that is. So you've got to look at those definitional elements of Reg 409, which talks about investment strategy, and write an investment strategy that addresses risk, return, liquidity, uh, cash flow, uh, the insurance needs of the members. So all of these sorts of things in relation to the assets that you've invested needs to come together to make sure that the trustee is investing for the retirement benefits of the members. And they're not making investment decisions which is going to benefit them today. They're not making benefit uh, investment decisions, which is going to benefit their family or or friends. It's it's information that they can take to provide them with a sound strategy to invest for their members at the end of the day. Yep, yeah, and and uh, do, you, do are you seeing that coming a bit more with the investment strategy becoming a bit more of a focus for um, the trustees and and them reviewing that more regularly? Oh, look, it is within the industry. A lot of uh, accountants and advisors are certainly revisiting their investment strategies because auditors are looking at them a, a lot more closely as well. So previously, if you had an investment strategy, you'd really just look for those, you know, big tick words like risk, return, diversification, liquidity, and you go, yeah, okay, that seems pretty reasonable. But now we're wanting more meat in the sandwich. We're wanting to understand and have the trustees articulate how this investment that they're uh, going into, such as cryptocurrency, is going to provide 
uh, the retirement benefits and maximise the retirement benefits for members at the end of the day because that's what it's about and being able to put into effect your investment strategies. So saying why you're doing it, how it's going to help, how it's going to help you meet your pension payments at the end of the year so or the, at the time that you retire. So if you have a fairly big lumpy asset there such as property and you're getting a certain rent in and that's 90% of your fund, if you have a situation like COVID and you're getting regular pension payments in, how is that going to work in the cash flows position, especially when we've had all of the deferral of rent through COVID that we've just seen? So obviously you need to think, there's things that you can't foresee, but you need to think about the types of things in terms of how that's going to impact your ability to invest and how that's going to impact your members at the end of the day. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to foresee something, but we've mm. now seen it, right? It's uh, yes, it's now no longer <laughs> an unknown. Uh, so it's certainly one of those things. But it'd be interesting to see if, uh, if um, you know, investment uh, strategies uh, are, are changed that, like that now that they can see them. When it comes to investment strategies, I think – one of the things is um, people tend to get into is is this cookie cutter type scenario where they've created one and let's just roll that out and um, make it flexible and easy and 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 not really get into too much detail. Are you, are you seeing much of that? Look, that that happens within the industry. I think that probably um, the better better advisors understand uh, what their clients have and if they're going to take that approach, they may then have a, an investment strategy which encompasses um, pretty much everything that their clients are going to have, whether or not they invest, the particular clients invest in that or not, that may well be their approach. Um, I think that the investment strategies are getting more detailed, as I said, as a result of the ATO Let's Letter campaign a couple of years ago. And I think that's been a good thing because what it's done is it's forced trustees um, and also uh, professionals within the industry to look at the investment strategy with a different set of eyes um, and be able to pro- provide, I guess, a different service to their clients as well in terms of sitting them down and asking them questions about their expectations, about what they want to achieve in, in their um, retirement, what they're wanting what what they're wanting to do along the way to get there. Um, and obviously that needs to be put into the statement of advice, but that is also a very separate document to an investment strategy. So, you know, they need to be kept separate at all times and, and the questions are going to be different for each of those documents, but there's certainly questions that you need to talk to your clients about. Uh, for example, when they are entering an LRBA, for example, and you've typically got one trustee or one trustee, one member who's more dominant than the other, who has probably, you know, gone down this path, who's probably um, earning the most of money and putting the most contributions in, what happens if that member dies? What happens if they divorce? We never want to think about the worst case scenario, but these are the sorts of questions that you can actually talk to your clients about and obviously think about how that will work and put it into your investment strategy. Of course, there'll be a lot more detail in your statement of advice, but there's no reason that that, those sorts of scenarios and those sorts of situations can't be thought about and discussed within your investment strategy as well. Yeah, now obviously there is a bit of an overlap between what's in your investment strategy and then what happens in the SOA. Um, yeah. But they are you're, you're absolutely right. They're two very separate documents and need to be um, standalone almost, don't they? Yes, no, definitely. We've been given statement of advice before, which has said this is your investment strategy. 
and trying to, you know, work your way through 100-plus pages of a statement of advice, trying to pick out those elements that you need to tick off for an investment strategy just becomes very, very difficult and time-consuming. So, yeah, they definitely need to be two separate documents. Yeah, fantastic. Now, uh, we did we did touch on um, LRB, uh, sorry, LRBAs and uh, property in, in self-managed super funds. Obviously, this has been something over the, over the many years that has been a very big part of the, the whole self-managed super fund industry. Um, then there was, as you mentioned, some 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 ATO sort of stepped up and 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 made some comments and uh, talked to trustees. How did how's that gone, and how do you see it going over the next sort of few years with regards to um, property? Oh, look, Australians have a love affair with property, so I don't think that that's going to to stop. I mean, depending on where you live at the moment, property um, prices have gone through the roof. They've certainly generally recovered better than what they had before COVID. Um, I'm here in Newcastle and property is is at an all-time high. Interestingly, too, uh, rental here is very very um, sought after and there's a lot of um, you know, demand for that, which is driving prices up, etc. Having said that, um, my son lives in Kensington near New South Wales Uni and you can get a, a flat there for, you know, a quarter, of, or not a quarter, but, uh, you know, significant discount to what you could before COVID because there's a lot of um, vacant blocks there because the students have all moved out. So, you know, it depends and it depends really, I think, from suburb to suburb as to how the property market's going to, to fare moving forward. I, I, that's not my area of specialty. From our point of view, we need to have evidence of market value for property to be able to obviously sign off um, compliance with Reg 8.02B. And that can be difficult at, um, at, at the moment. Um, certainly during COVID when lockdown was happening, it's tr- difficult trying to get a real estate agent to come and give you a curbside valuation of your property. The ATO has interestingly now come out and said that if you do get a curbside valuation for your property, you also have to have that curbside valuation list the comparable properties that that uh, real estate agent has used to come up with their valuation. So typically we would just see a one pager that just said, yep, being around, here's a, here's a price. It's somewhere between $1.1, $1.3 million. So you take 1.2 and you'd be happy. Now we need to see that real estate agent list whatever comparable properties that were sold in that area, which was used to come up with that valuation. So it's also about getting that information uh, to be able to um, look at the methodology that was used to be able to come up with that. And we need to be able to sign off on that and make sure that that's in place and we can understand that and we're looking at those source documents at the end of the day. So there's there's a change in terms of what we're looking at in terms of um, audit and that comes from the ATO, from the regulator, and that changes every year as well. So, for example, if we're looking at an online valuation, which the ATO says that we can use, uh, some of those standard deviations from those online valuations can be quite significant. So, if you've got one that says that the property values between four hundred and eight hundred thousand, you can't take six hundred thousand as the midpoint and go, yeah, I'm happy with that. It's it's that it, it, that's deviation is more than ten percent, and therefore it's not acceptable. We'd also need to make sure that that report has a list of comparable properties within the area, so that we can understand that the valuation range is you know reasonable and has been uh, based on uh, a sound methodology. Yeah, this is really interesting because um, often um, it's, you know, real estate agents are 
I, I guess it, it, it's not necessarily, a, you know, a, a valuation where it's done by a, a valuer, for example. And I think um, probably in, um, commercial property is one of these areas that is very difficult to and to run off. But um, I was just sort of going to mention or ask around the idea of the real estate valuation. How, um, you know, is there is there when does it become a, a, a property valuer that you need to get involved? Uh, well, I guess when the property is complex or you just can't get a valuation undertaken by a real estate a licensed real estate agent, uh, there is an ability for the trustees themselves to do a valuation. But once again, they need to do their homework and they need to provide us with a list of at least three comparable properties that have been sold within that area so that we understand that the valuation that they've come up with is you know, reasonable and based on a sound methodology. So without that, you know, sometimes you just get a minute that says the trustees have reviewed the sales in the area and the valuation is $500,000. Not acceptable at audit. We need to have that um, source documentation to show us exactly how you came up with that valuation. We just can't take it on face value. We need to make sure that we've also got that on audit file as well because lack of market valuation evidence on audit file is one of the main reasons why the ATO is referring SMSF auditors to ASIC for disciplinary reasons. Yep. So it's become a very big issue. And market valuation is used to make sure that obviously pensions are being paid correctly, make sure that um, uh, the cost of unlisted entities within a super fund is listed at market value because that's a way in which you can get around those in-house asset 5% limit um, and making sure and under Reg 8.02b now that all of those assets are valued at market value. So there's a few reasons there and some reasons why that valuation or that regulation came in as a reportable valuation back in 2014. Yep. Now, as I think about the trends in um, self-managed super funds, obviously there was a, you know, there's been huge spikes in popularity and there's also been some moments where, um, you know, I guess a lot of people were winding up their funds. Um, in the, I guess a couple of parts to this. One is I'm, I'm, I'm interested in saying, if, you know, when it comes to winding up funds and those sorts of things, what, what are you really, what are your, what are your tips around that for planners and how do they really approach that? Um, and secondly, I was going to ask you really around the idea of where, you know, where, where is the trend at the moment? Oh, look, I think that there's always a slight fluctuation with wind-ups in terms of, you know, it, it goes sort of either side, but pretty much it's, um, you know, some whatever wind-ups we're seeing, we're seeing new establishments as well, and that's where I'm saying it's a fairly um, flat sort of a, a scenario from that point of view. Even when we're seeing small spikes in, in, in wind-ups, um, it's really then a timing issue as well, uh, which is sort of rectified the following year from the ATO stats. So the wind-ups, you know, while we're seeing a little bit of fluctuation, pretty well, you know, have been steady for the last few years, I think. Um, in terms of the information that's required at audit, obviously we need to have financial statements that show that there's no assets in the fund. Uh, and so member statements are, are a zero. There may be a few assets which is offset by um, you know, future payments out to members, which might be things like accrued um, expenses such as accounting fees or audit fees or things like that. But we need to make sure that there's zero assets in the in the fund at the end of the day, which is shown on the member statements and therefore reflected in the financial statements as well. 
Um, one of the things which is really difficult is obviously where there's been a request to wind up obviously before 30th of June, simply because once it rolls into that other year, you're up for another set of fees. Um, and you've got a situation where the request has been made, say, early June, but it doesn't take effect until after the, the end of the financial year. Now, it depends is the answer to what you're going to ask, which is, is that okay or not, I guess? And the answer is it depends because it depends on when it happens. Like if it's if it June 30 was on a weekend and we could see that that request had been made on a timely basis but for all other reasons um, apart from, you know, banks and their archaic, you know, systems and, and the inability to process things on time for various reasons, which we don't have enough time to talk about today, obviously, Fraser, but it may well just, you know, spill over into that first day or two of the following financial year. We can probably understand how that happens, but if you've got a term deposit that's still sitting there in the 30th of, of August, the following financial year, and they're trying to wind up the fund on the 30th of June, that's probably a little bit of a disconnect, which we're sort of going, you know what, that's not actually going to work. The fund has not wound up. We can't sign off that there's zero assets in the fund at 30th of June. It simply can't happen. Um, so it's we look at these sorts of things and make sure that everything's come out. You don't necessarily have to wind up the bank account simply because there may be some other dividends or there may be some other things which are coming into the fund. So that's not mission critical. Uh, you can do that if you like, but we're not looking for that as, at, at audit particularly. Obviously, we want to make sure that the wind-up minutes has been uh, put in place. We want to make sure that any rollovers uh, and money's going out of the fund has been paid um, appropriately to the correct party. So it may well be a rollover to an APRA fund. We obviously want to make sure that that's gone through and we get that documentation. If there's been pension payments, we want to make sure that that's happened correctly. Um, so we just want to make sure that all of those T's are crossed and those I's are dotted to make sure that the fund's been wound up. Um, the tax return, it says, yes, this is the fund's been wound up, the date it's been wound up. So all of these sorts of little things we look at at audit and make sure that, um, you know, it is compliant. Um, and even if there's a breach in that particular year, even if the fund has been wound up, uh, it's still under where we're still required to lodge that ACR if, the, if, if that's necessary with the ATO, and we don't have any discretion about that either. But we will note in that ACR that the um, fund has wound up. Yep. So, yeah. yep, fair enough. And uh, now, obviously, you're not in the, in the in the area of giving advice on this, but um, you know, uh, corporate trustees versus personal trustees. Are you seeing any uh, issues around that that we really need to be uh, aware of? Look, there's certainly been a swing uh, uh, towards establishing corporate trustees, which is probably, from an administration point of view, the easiest option to go down. Obviously, trustees uh, probably have a you know, a dislike of spending money, <laughs> but at the end of the day, they they find it um, they find it difficult to transition, I guess, from an APRA fund over to an SMSF in terms of expenses, because in an APRA fund, you're just seeing an MER, you're just seeing an expense in that APRA fund, whereas in a SMSF, it's real dollars coming out of your fund, and obviously there's percentage there, and the higher balance you've got, the lower uh, percentage you've got. MER in your own sort of fund. But at the end of the day, it is a slight different mindset from a trustee's point of view or moving into it from a member's as an upper fund moving into a trustee of an SMSF because then you're responsible for, you know, paying all those expenses yourself. 
So um, moving moving from a corp into corporate trustee makes sense, even though that there's a cost involved there, because what that means is that when you have a change of members or a change of trustees, it's easy to transition them in and out. You don't have to go in and rename all of those uh, particular assets that you've got in the fund. You don't have to go to computer share. You don't have to go to link market securities. You don't have to go to whichever uh, platform you're using and rename the own or the, the um, uh, trustee of that fund. Even though the beneficial owner of the super funds the same, the trustee will have to be changed. Um, and obviously, if you've got individual trustees, if you've got a trust deed, um, that trust deed will typically have to be updated. Uh, for that new trustee to to come in, if you've got uh, and, and that will depend also on on the contents of that trust the the original trustee as to whether it requires a new trustee. So there's a whole lot of things you need to consider, which when you have a corporate trustee, it becomes less of a pressure point. So you don't have to do any of that. You can move directors in and out of a corporate trustee with with relative ease without having to change all of the trustee names of all of your assets. Although when you do have a new trustee at all times, you do have to have the trustee sign an ATO trustee declaration form within 21 days of them being appointed a trustee or a corporate or a director of a corporate trustee. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Shelley, thank you for coming and chatting us today about all different things around the auditing process of the self-managed super funds. Uh, now, as the head of education at AFS Audits, tell us about uh, how can somebody get hold of you if they want to continue the conversation or, or ask you some questions? Oh, look, uh, first thing to do, they can uh, get in touch or access our website, www.asfaudits.com.au, um, and they can certainly um, contact me if they like. Uh, they can contact you through the show and I can and certainly pass your, your, their details on to me and I'll be happy to have a chat with them. Even if it's just a case of oh, you've got this particular issue, I'm happy to help as much as I can and be able to get funds back onto being compliant and um, this and, and getting rid of that fear factor that people have to sleep with and live with every day. So, um, yeah, let's make things easier. I love it. I love the attitude of, uh, of getting funds back into uh, being compliant. And I love the fact that you're passionate about that too, by the way. It's sort of a, it's very unique, uh, you know, skill set to be, you know, uh, to be doing. Uh, and uh, and the fact that it's right in your wheelhouse is fantastic. So, uh, fantastic. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, uh, we encourage them to, to jump on uh, ASF. I think I said it the wrong way around before. Um, but make sure we get that right. And uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Fraser. Thanks, everybody. It's been a pleasure to be here today. Really enjoyed it. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the XY Advisor podcast. I'm Fraser Jack and joined by Emily Blanche. Hey, Emily. Hey, Fraser. How are you? So cool. So I'm, I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking. So this is our <laughs> awesome time of the week. Where we get to uh, chat about some of the stuff that's going on within the community and give some, some shout outs. It is. It is. All right. Let's give a shout out today to Dylan Martin. So he's posted or started, I should say, a couple of really great discussions on the platform which have generated a lot of uh, comments and input from other advisors. One in particular centred around uh, a poll even on ongoing service arrangements. He was keen to get a sense check from others to find out what they're doing with their ongoing service arrangements given that it's uh, changed a lot in the industry over the years and how people are tackling this in their business and what they offer their clients and the types of arrangements that they have. Um, so yeah, there's like 30, 40 plus comments in there, everyone giving their two cents, weighing in. Um, it's just a really great discussion. So Dylan, 
thank you for sparking a couple of great conversations in amongst the community. I know it's definitely generated um, a lot of value and helped plenty of others too. 